0: What the music means, our perennial favorite section, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's take a little detour into that, shall we? For today's grouping, we will again rely, as we often do, on The Week magazine. We often rely upon its Good Week 4, Bad Week 4, and Only in America sections. Let us start off by noting that it was a good week last week for labor saving. Now, we've often been critical on this program of, of high-tech, quote, improvements, unquote, in our lives that often don't seem to improve our lives as much as the tech companies allege, but we're on board with this one. Researchers at UC Berkeley have announced that they're making progress on robots that can fold laundry. <laughs> a $60,000 industrial robot was able to fold one item of human clothing in two minutes, which is not very fast, let's face it, but it's, it's a prototype. The team considers this an impressive speed given the high-dimensional configuration, given the, quote, high-dimensional configuration space of garments, end quote. Anyway, let's see. That would take, uh, that would take an hour to do 30 items. Uh, but you know what? If I had $60,000, I'd want one in my laundry room. Me too. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for apiculture with the news that Rory Woods age 55 of Massachusetts, was charged with unleashing a swarm of bees on police officers serving an eviction notice. Informed that several officers were allergic to bee stings, Woods allegedly responded, good. She has reportedly pled not guilty, although we're not sure to what. And it was an ugly week, surely, surely an ugly week for dealing with America's gun crisis, specifically school shootings, with this little item. Following the Uvalde massacre, Texas K-6 students are being sent home with DNA kits to make their corpses easier to identify. Parents said they were not reassured. They've decided our kids aren't worth restricting guns, said mother Emily Westbrook. The DNA kits, she said, were in-your-face reminders that their children could be obliterated by automatic weapons to the point they won't be recognizable. You know, this story seems so incredible, I'm I, I, I sort of feeling I should have fact checked it. On the other hand, we're talking about Texas. So we are going to assume that those nutty people down there have actually done this. And what we have to describe as both a bad and ugly case of civil rights or maybe controversy over civil rights. I don't know. Here's the story. Two professors are suing the California State University system over its new ban on, quote, caste, unquote, discrimination. Professors Sunil Kumar and Praveen Sinha claim that because the ancient social hierarchy known as caste is a Hindu practice in India, naming it as a form of discrimination targets, quote, all Indian origin and Hindu staff and students solely because we are Indian. Well, I don't know. I I think it's probably true that uh, only Indians observe the caste system. Oh, wait, big, big correction. Only Hindus, only people who practice the Hindu religion, adhere to the caste system. That, In fact, was one of the reasons that Islam was so dang popular when it reached the Indian subcontinent. The lower castes were told, you don't have to spend your whole life as a second-class or third-class or fifth-class citizen, but really, does this qualify as discrimination against Hindus? Because, you know, the fact of the matter here, the fact of the matter is that here in the United States of America, we, we don't have a caste system, at least not an official one. If you want to have and observe an official caste system, I think you probably should just stick to India. That's my opinion. This reminds you, Mr. Miller, of an item we did probably, I don't know, pushing 20 years ago, at least 15 years ago, regarding the caste system in India. Toilet? The news item was that a bus had gone into a ravine in a swollen river, and to rescue the passengers clinging to the top of the bus, a rope was sent over. The first person to climb across on the rope was a Dalit or untouchable after which the higher class Hindus refused to touch the rope because it had been soiled by a Dalit. Wouldn't you know it, after that the river rose, swept the bus away, killed all the people that were remaining on board. My very uncharitable comment at the time was, good! I suppose looking at it now, I probably should retract that. But you know what? I'm not going to. (laughs) Anyway, let's move on. I have another invention to talk about here, a high-tech solution to problems that that I wouldn't rank up there with the closed folding device, but it certainly is a reflection of the times we're living in. According to the Daily Beast, we now have a plain steel box on the market that's primed to put an end to package theft. <laughs> the Ufi Smart Drop is marketed as just in time for the holiday shopping season. The box is a delivery box. It marshals technology to help protect your home deliveries with a motion sensor, a camera, and a two-way audio feed. It detects when an individual approaches, sends a notification, and allows you to observe the delivery or communicate instructions. Or we presume if a robbery is ongoing, you can say like, Hey, hey, what are you doing? Mr. McMillan tells me that the Ring Doorbell System already allows people to do this. It is noted that the box can handle the task on its own. If it's empty, a delivery person can simply press open. Your regular carrier can also be provided with a pin number. They only cost 400 bucks, which frankly is a lot cheaper than that closed folding machine. Did we talk about the blowing up of that natural gas pipeline last week? Yeah, I was buying into the idea that the Russians did it at first, but someone pointed out to me that just makes absolutely no sense. Why would you blow up a pipeline when if you wanted to shut it off, all you had to do was you know, turn the wheel? No, we have to admit, the fact of the matter is, it makes no sense whatsoever for Russia to have sabotaged its own pipeline. But the fact that the U.S. was opposed to these pipelines, and certain elements in the West uh, didn't like the fact that Russian gas was going to Europe, probably gets us closer to who the culprit was. I've seen reports stating that this was actually the, the largest single leak of methane in history, which again raises questions. Why couldn't they have shut off the gas when they knew the pipes were blown up? I don't know. I got questions. need answers. I guess if you had a pipe and it was filled up with gas all the way across the Baltic Ocean, you let it all out, that'd be quite a bit of gas. But I haven't done the math. I guess I could do like Rush Limbaugh and just make something up. Yeah, but we don't do that here in Radio Parallax. Some further bad news regarding methane gas. NPR.org is reporting that the oil industry's practice of burning off the unwanted methane to prevent it from leaking into the atmosphere is much less efficient than previously assumed. A new study examining flaring at three of the largest oil and gas basins in the U.S. found the practice often doesn't completely burn off the methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas, 20 times as potent as CO2. It's estimated that they simply improve the efficiency of the burning process and making sure the flares remain lit, it would result in annual emissions reductions equivalent to taking nearly three million cars off the road each year. Alright, let's let's do some more science stuff for a few minutes. The Juno spacecraft, currently orbiting Jupiter, apparently made some passes recently at its moon Europa. Europa has a surface composed of ice. And the new photos taken by the Juno spacecraft, some close-up images, show long fractures crisscrossing the surface that may have been caused by the rising and falling of tides in a subterranean ocean. This adds to other data, such as a magnetic field measurements, indicating that there is salty water below, suggesting that Europa is indeed home to liquid water down under the icy surface. As such, it remains one of the most likely candidates to harbor life in the solar system pretty cool. Mr. Willis says that for his part, he's particularly excited about the possibility of ice hockey on Europa. And of course, you know, figure stating as well, it goes without saying. And speaking of sports teams, let's take a slight sports digression in our science detour and confirm that it turns out that in the current World Series being played between the Philadelphia Phillies and Houston Astros, there are in fact no, no U.S.-born black players on the series rosters. Driving down the California coast recently in one of my cars, which has a pretty worthless radio, we decided to air an old segment of Radio Parallax where we spoke with author Larry Tai about his book on the legendary Satchel Page. We spent a lot of that conversation talking about how Satchel Page probably should have been the first black player to break the color barrier in the major leagues. But you know, and how it was he turned out to be a rookie on the Cleveland Indians at age 42 and if you saw the Ken Burns special on baseball and I hope you did because Ken Burns did a wonderful job even if you don't like baseball much it was still worth watching the series the issue of discrimination and breaking the color barrier in the major leagues was prominently featured in a couple of the of the of the episodes it was a pretty big deal in sports history and civil rights history so it's very odd that at this point apparently in the United States of America Black youth are not much interested in baseball. I suppose in general, kids are less interested in baseball than they used to be. I guess they've instead been diverted into the quasi-sports of soccer and basketball. Now, it should be noted that there's, there are plenty of, of black-talented players on both teams, just that they come from the Caribbean. They're not native-born Americans. This is really not a new thing. Apparently, back in 2020, when the Dodgers beat Tampa Bay the LA star Mookie Betts was the only black player in the World Series. Odd statistic on the side is that the Phillies apparently had no black players on their opening roster for the first time since 1959. I don't know, for a kid that grew up with Mays, McCovey, and Marichal, this is, this is disturbing. I gotta say, I'm a little disturbed by the fact that the Philadelphia Phillies, I think, had the sixth best record among the six teams that made the cutoff for the playoffs how can you be in the World Series if you have the 6th best record in the league and then on the American League we have the Houston Astros, in the American League wait, the Houston Astros were a National League team until I don't know, what year Miss Merlin, do you know? I don't know, I wasn't following baseball closely at the time of that abomination yeah it kind of was an abomination and we're going to leave it at that alright back to other science stuff We're always looking for good news when it comes to science and the environment, and here's one item. According to New Scientist magazine, Guatemala's decimated rainforest is now on the mend. It's noted that life is now returning to swaths of the Maya Biosphere Reserve that were illegally cleared 13 years ago. Regeneration of the forest means it was 25 square kilometers larger in 2020 than in 2019, and it grew another three and a half kilometers in 2021 what were described as uniform pastures punctuated with bare trees in 2009 have become blankets of forest teeming with tropical birds and monkeys yet again. Well good. I remember visiting Tikal in Guatemala many years ago and was there near one of the temples at sunset and it was well it was a truly memorable experience. Good for the Guatemalans. And uh, in case you've ever been wondering whether moss from planet Earth would grow into the light of another star, well, luckily for you, (laughs) the verdict seems to be in on that one. According to new scientists, algae, moss, and bacteria can all survive and grow in the light produced by a red dwarf star, according to experiments. This boosts the idea that planets around the red dwarf stars like TRAPPIST-1 could host life. The most promising exoplanets for life orbit stars that are smaller and cooler than our sun. Well, that's because most stars are red dwarfs. Assuming that they have planets, that's where you're going to find most of the planets. Anyway, trouble with these little cool red stars is they radiate different profiles of light. A star like TRAPPIST-1 would give out more infrared light. Last year, Nicoletta La Roca at the University of Padua in Italy and her colleagues tested how organisms from Earth might fare under simulated starlight by placing several types of cyanobacteria, also known as blue-green algae or algae, in a starlight generator consisting of 273 controllable LEDs, which could mimic sunlight or red dwarf light. The cyanobacteria, which are efficient at photosynthesis, grew almost as well under the artificial red dwarf light as they did under the simulated light from our sun. Well, this is certainly good news for potential future blue-green algae growers on the Trappist system. And it is a system, by the way. The Trappist one, I think, has something like seven planets they've documented orbiting it. It's kind of cool. And if you know anyone who's trying to eat a paleo diet, you should probably inform them that they're probably doing it wrong. The Economist notes, that for a long time it was thought, that humanity's Stone Age ancestors loaded up on meat and avoided carbs. But modern hunter-gatherers, have an exceptionally diverse diet often containing lots of plants. Dr. Ponzer has worked closely with the Hadza, a group of them in Tanzania, and has access to four decades worth of detailed dietary data about them. The amount of meat they eat depends on what sort of year it is, but over the course of you know year after year, the ratio of animals to plants works out to about 50-50. This again echoes the sentiment that there is perhaps no optimal human diet, and all the official guidances about what proportions of meat, vegetables, grains, and dairy constitute a proper diet matters less than people actually think. Dr. Ponzer certainly believes so, but this does not quite answer the question, says the magazine, of why hunter-gatherers are generally thin while they growing a fraction of other people are fat It does kind of circle back to the idea that, you know, eating unprocessed foods is better for you than eating, you know, highly processed things. When we do that, we tend to overindulge in the number of calories we consume. Of course, this isn't all good news. Uh, They they took a look at one of the Hadza staples. It's apparently a tuber called an equa. It's a sort of a woody carrot. To make this edible, you have to peel off the rind and roast the rest, and then chew it to extract its nutritional value before spitting out the fibrous residue. Ponzer, who spent time living and eating with the Hadza, describes the equa as really bland. He's also eaten boiled warthog, which he says is okay, but also tasteless. Of course, I would, I would say that must depend on the spices that you add to the boiled warthog, but I don't know. Mr. Mullen points out you, you really should roast your warthog. And then there's the matter of berries. The Hadza apparently eat berries. They're very much unlike the plump, watery, sugary things that we find in our supermarkets. They're dry with many seeds. Anyway, the good doctor doesn't particularly recommend the the diet of the Hadza, their their form of paleo diet. In fact, the only foods he he could endorse, he says, were the local honey and the fruit of the baobab tree. Baobab fruit has a crusty, dry interior that's a bit like Polystyrene, but tangy. Well, they're going to have to work on the marketing for that one. You know, tangy styrofoam isn't probably going to win people over. We, we talked in the show last year about the fact they're, they're trying to bring baobab trees uh, into production of their fruits. And I'm sorry to note that I was just in Africa where they have baobab trees, and I neglected to ask about the fruit. I guess I'll have to go back. And we talked some years back about, uh, well, we talked several times, I think, about um, the dangers of GMOs which consists mainly of how it is they're going to reduce genetic variability in our foodstuffs. There's a book out that was reviewed in New Scientist called The Seed Detectives by Adam Alexander that's worth talking a bit about. Mr. Alexander is evidently an award-winning film and TV producer and uh, has now decided to move into books. In, In this book The Seed Detective Uncovering the Secret Histories of Remarkable Vegetables He went out to take a look at, uh, you know, non-standard types of vegetables and varieties uh, that we have here in our supermarket shelves, you know, flavorless, listless tomatoes, watery, mushy cucumbers, but on rare or more ancient varieties that have been pushed to the fringes. I didn't realize this, but he looked into it and claimed that a lot of these uh, unusually colored tomatoes and carrots on upscale restaurant menus or in packs and supermarket shelves, marked as heritage or heirloom are nothing of the sort. They're modern hybrids designed to look a little different. The author's fascination started with a sweet and spicy pepper he ate on a trip to Ukraine. It was unlike anything he'd tried before and it helped him develop a sixth sense for seeking out unusual fruits and vegetables and their seeds. Rather than be drawn in by colorful varieties or bombastic backstories, Alexander seeks proprietors of market stalls, assuming, usually correctly, that they are growing the oldest, most reliable, least mainstream varieties. Apparently in one chapter he explains how it is we got some of these uh, ubiquitous, tasteless uh, types of foodstuffs, like the iceberg lettuce, which came to be starting with the Great Lakes Iceberg, which was designed to withstand cross-country train rides. Alarmingly, he opines that 90% of all fruit and vegetable varieties have been lost in the past century as production has become ever more mechanized and standardized, and this is a genuine concern. Anyway, let's end off here by taking a turn back into the world of politics and trying to sound an optimistic note in, in what could be a wave of pessimistic developments To cite one, the Senate appears poised to, um, well, the Senate appears to be a toss-up. 49 Republicans and 49 Democrats likely to win with two races, just, you know, a coin flip. One of those two races is the Georgia race between Ralph Warnock and Herschel Walker. I just have to just do one or two quotes regarding Herschel Walker, who's taking a blanket stance against abortion. Unless he's impregnated you. (laughs) <laughs> I just had to laugh at the words of Andrew Sullivan in his Substack newsletters. He said the problem runs far deeper than Walker's abortion hypocrisy. He's an incoherent, quite possibly brain-damaged moron whose only qualifications are football celebrity and Trump's backing. He's a serial liar who's, conducted a ho- who's concocted a host of academic and career achievements and an accused spousal abuser who's abandoned four kids by four different mothers. One of his disgusted, neglected kids last week tweeted his denunciation of his father as a liar, abuser, and hypocrite. Said Sullivan, for Republicans to disregard all this shows how degenerate they've become. There's no principle they will not jettison, no evil they will not excuse, no crime they won't. What about? Take a hard look at Walker. That's what the GOP is now. Let's take a look at the stories of two people. One in Michigan, as told by The Atlantic, and one down in Georgia, as reported in The Washington Post. The article in The Atlantic by Tim Alberta was titled, Bad Losers, with the sub-headline, election deniers are a threat to democracy. The midterms could be the last chance to stop them. The piece starts off by noting that Chris Thomas has made democracy his life's work. A 73-year-old attorney. Thomas spent nearly four decades leading the Elections Division in the office of Michigan's Secretary of State. He served under Republicans and Democrats alike, and his mandate was always the same protect the ballot box. He trained local election workers, sought out and fixed weaknesses in the voting systems, investigated errors committed while ballots were being collected and tabulated, and ultimately ensured the accuracy of the count. Thomas was one of 10 people named to the Presidential Commission on Election Administration in 2013. He earned a reputation as a nonpartisan authority on all things elections and took pride in supervising a system that was stable and widely trusted, which is why 2020 shook him so badly. Thomas had retired from the Secretary of State's office a few years earlier, confident that Michigan's elections were in good hands. Then the coronavirus pandemic arrived, prompting changes to election protocols nationwide, and Donald Trump began warning of a Democratic plot to steal the election. As Michigan rolled out new voting rules, rumors and misinformation spread. Wanting to help, Thomas accepted a special assignment to supervise election day activities in Detroit, the state's largest voting jurisdiction. What followed was surreal a scene that Thomas could scarcely believe was playing out in the United States. Michigan had recently expanded absentee voting, allowing any resident to vote by mail for any reason. Because Democrats are likely than Republicans to vote absentee, and because Detroit is predominantly Democratic, Thomas and his colleagues had to process an unprecedented number of absentee ballots. Complicating matters further, Republican lawmakers in Michigan refused to let election workers start counting absentee ballots until election day. The effect was predictable. Because of the backlog of absentee ballots, Trump took a big lead on election night. As Thomas and his team worked into the early hours, Trump's lead shrank. By Wednesday afternoon, it was clear that Joe Biden would overtake him. That's when things got out of hand, Thomas said. Incited by Trump's acolytes in the state party, Hundreds of Republican voters swarmed the event center in Detroit where Thomas and his workers were tabulating votes. Republicans had their allotted number of poll watchers already inside, but party officials lied to the public saying they'd been locked out. So people busted into the event center, banging on the windows, filming the election workers, demanding to be let into the counting room. Fearing for their safety and for the integrity of the ballots, the people inside covered the windows. Thomas said the decision was necessary. Within minutes, video was circulating on social media of the windows being covered. And before long, it was airing on Fox News with commentary about a cover-up. Trump was alleging a national plot to steal the election and now Detroit and Chris Thomas were right in the middle of it. Now, the article doesn't go into this, but we know that there were various legal challenges in Michigan about what happened in Detroit and they were all thrown out. But then there's round two in 2018. 22. In August of this year, when Michigan held its primary elections, all eyes were on the Republican race for governor. Two of the perceived frontrunners had been disqualified for failing to reach signature thresholds. Most of the remaining candidates were champions of Trump's big lie, but none more so than Ryan Kelly, who participated in the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol and was arrested last June by the FBI on misdemeanor charges. When the returns came in and Kelly lost, he refused to concede. Instead, he called for a quote, publicly supervised hand recount to uphold election integrity. End quote. But Kelly had a problem. He'd finished fourth, capturing just 15% of the vote and losing to the Republican nominee by 25 percentage points. It was a similar story in another closely-watched Michigan race. State Senator Lana Theis, a Republican who'd co-written a committee report debunking Trump's voter fraud allegations after the 2020 election, defeated a MAGA conspiracy theorist, Mike Demmer, by 15 points in their primary contest. Detmer's response, When we have full, independent, unfettered forensic audits of 2020 and 2022, I'll consider the results. This pattern is played out in races all across the country with sole Republican losers doing their best Trump impressions, alleging fraud to explain a drubbing at the ballot box. Thomas told the author, this gives me real hope, he said this in September, because people understand when there's a margin like that, you lost. And if you're going to insist you didn't lose, well, now people are going to be skeptical of what you've been telling them all along. Is the sky really falling? You can only tell a lie so many times before people stop listening to you said author Tim Alberta. His optimism struck me as misplaced. For one thing, these were just primary elections. Tudor Dixon, the GOP's gubernatorial nominee in Michigan, is herself a 2020 conspiracy theorist. In fact, all three Republicans on top of the statewide tickets this fall, Dixon, as well as the nominees for attorney general and secretary of state, have claimed the Democrats stole the election. Michigan's GOP lawmakers have not allowed changes to vote processing laws despite the chaos of 2020. In the event of close Democratic victories in November, we can expect another red mirage in which the Republican nominee jumps out to a big lead soon after the polls close, only to fall behind as the backlog of absentee ballots is counted. The conspiracy theories will practically spread themselves. Chris Thomas points out that a lot of Republicans who've made election denying the centerpiece of their campaign must lose and lose badly. They will cry fraud and demand recounts and refuse to concede. They'll throw tantrums sufficient to draw attention to their margins of defeat. At that point, Thomas says, maybe a critical mass of GOP voters, the very people who supported these candidates in the first place, will finally realize they've been duped. Maybe they will abandon the lies and choose a different path before it's too late. And we, too, can certainly hope so, but we would note that Tim Alberta reported that hours after he finished speaking with Thomas, CNN published a report exposing a Zoom training seminar in which Republican leaders in Wayne County, Michigan, home to Detroit, instructed poll watchers to ignore election rules and smuggle in pens, paper, and cell phones to document Democratic cheating. That seminar was held on August 1st, the day before Michigan's primary said Tim Alberta. I want to believe our system of self-government is durable enough to withstand all this. I want to believe, Thomas, that everything will be all right. But as we spoke, it struck me that despite his expertise and despite his ringside seat to the unraveling of our democracy, Thomas is like millions of other Americans who can't quite bring themselves to face what's happening. Yeah, it looks as though I've talked too long and run out of time, but in the minute or so we have left, I just want to cite the article in the Washington Post about how one small-town lawyer faced down the plans of election skeptics in Georgia and won. A bunch of election deniers down in Georgia wanted to make the sealed paper ballots a public record. They wanted a judge to grant their county election board broad powers to conduct elections in whatever manner it deemed necessary to assuage the doubts of people like them. Lawyer Phil Landrum stood up to them, and he won. A judge agreed that they just couldn't do this. Were they to establish this legal precedent, then every county in Georgia, every jurisdiction could be challenged by anybody who could demand that the voter records be handed over to them. Anyway, I guess you could say that if enough good people do the right thing, we're going to come out of this okay. God dang, I hope so. We, unfortunately, are out of time. I hope the same cannot be said for the American democracy. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and we'll see you post-election.